0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying healthy, happy and safe. We have a big show today, so let's get right at it. Later on in the show, we'll meet Lyndon McIntyre, the award-winning former co-host of the investigative news program, The Fifth Estate. He's also a Giller Prize-winning best-selling author with a new novel called The Winter Wives in-store now. It's a psychological drama that weaves the threads of crime and disability and dementia together into a tale of unrequited love and delusion. We'll get to that in just a little while. We'll also meet Al Val, a queer comedian, actor, writer, and musician who was recently featured on CBC Gems' The New Wave of Stand-Up and will also be seen as part of the all-new season of The Stand-Up Show with John Doerr. First, though, I want to tell you about a new short film called Death Doula, co-directed by my guests, CBC radio and television host Amanda Parrish and Lucius D'Shaussi. It's the story of a dystopian near future where our death date is predicted by an app. But there's a twist here. The death doula, who helps people cope with their deaths, is then tasked with aiding his first love, his first girlfriend, as she nears her final day, even though they haven't seen one another in years. It's an interesting piece of speculative fiction and will be part of the Caribbean Tales Film Festival. You can see it on September 17th, which this year is available online across the country via video on demand screenings at CaribbeanTales-TV. Here's Amanda and Lucius. Amanda, I want to start with you. When you're making a short film, Every second counts, every shot counts. Do you think that your background as a journalist helped you look at story and decide which part of the story was most important, which part uh, you would skim over if you were uh, just looking at it through eyes of someone who wasn't a journalist?
1: That's a really great question. I, I don't think I've thought about it from that perspective before. But what I will say is that my experience in the academic world completely hindered my writing in that sense, and that my experience as a journalist has made me less precious with things. So I think that that has been able to bleed over into, into this realm. This was my first time ever writing a screenplay, period. Um, and so it was it was tough because there's so much you want to put in there. You know, you, you're like, I'm going to write a short, and then you have the ideas of a feature, you know? And I have to say, Lucius was incredibly helpful and lethal in this regard because he read the script was very kind very um you know complimentary but also just like uh you gotta cut some stuff here you know (laughs) and you know went through it with the proverbial red marker and I shed a few tears and said goodbye to some stuff but I think you know, this entire experience was a huge lesson in in prioritizing, like, uh, what is really necessary to be here. And again, you know, we had to go through that entire process again in post production in the editing suite as well, too. So it's, it's just been a, I I consider this a, a, a huge learning experience. I learned so much. And that was one of the biggest lessons.
0: Well, Lucius, you've made a number of short films. This isn't your first one. Tell me a little bit about learning how they call it. And this is kind of terrible, but they call it killing your angels. These things that you really love uh, that you know have to go. Tell me how you learned that. That's something that
2: I learned very early on because I actually came into filmmaking through editing. Mm. And, you know, there would be times when I'd be working on films and, you know, the process. So, you know, that this shot took hours and the actors were incredible. Very like, the lighting was perfect, everything was very expensive. And then when you get to the edit suite, it's like, it just doesn't work. <laughs> and so I had to be the one, you know, usually to say, this, this just doesn't work, it just doesn't fit, it doesn't tell the story that we're trying to tell, even though it's a beautiful shot, even though it's beautifully composed. And so I think that um, this was a real challenge because, you know, Amanda is such an incredible writer, and there's so much depth. Um, you know, there's so many layers to this film. And so it was it was hard to say, okay, we gotta cut, we gotta cut, we gotta cut. But I knew that if we didn't cut it from the writing, it would just be that much harder to do it in, in post-production. So right. we, we had to start from that spot.
0: So you started before you ever shot a, a minute of film, then you had to look at this and said, okay, we're gonna pare it down to this. Were there further cuts after that?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, the idea was to have a 12 minute so you can see how we've struggled here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there was a lot of because, you know, as you said, it's a short film, you you know, some of the best short films are just a slice of life, right? Mm -hmm. Like a scene, a moment in time. And I unfortunately didn't know that and instead built a world and then we had to take that world and just take a slice. And so it was really tough and there were were some heartbreaking moments of cutting.
0: You're listening to my interview with Death Doula co-directors Amanda Paris and Lucius Duchasse. Um, Amanda, tell me a little bit about the inspiration for the story. It's a dystopian story where... An app tells you how much time you have left. So it's about end of life. It's about, I guess, our attitudes about end of life and and how it affects people differently. It's an interesting take on it. Tell me a little bit about the the inspiration.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wrote a short play earlier or less last year called "The Death News," and these two things kind of came out of the,
3: mm-hmm. the dreaming
1: up of the same world. Um, And the inspiration came from uh, this TV show that does exist in Grenada called The Death News, uh, where in Grenada, the island where my mom's side of my family is from, uh, people every evening sit around and watch the news to find out who died on the island (laughs) that day. And that's always been a very interesting concept to me. Uh, But I wanted to reposition that idea in North America. And it just and then and thinking about uh the ways that we think about death, thinking about the ways that we try to prep for it, the ways that we try to avoid it. Um, I was also very interested in writing something that wasn't directly connected to my experience, but instead wanted to try to utilize my imagination. So a lot of my writing has been, you know, leaning on some of the biographical. This was a, a challenge to write something just imagination-based. And so writing something futuristic felt like a really interesting um experiment as well too. So yeah, the idea came from one, this thing that current actually exists, the death news in Grenada, and two wanting to push myself to write something futuristic which I've never done before. Um, and so yeah, the the concept of the app came in. I started researching about death doulas which do exist and are really interesting practice that are is also kind of increasing in North America. Um, and so taking a little bit of all of those things and then and then trying to craft a sort of tragic romance out of all of it um was really what it came down to but i wrote this as part of a continuing education class at uft <laughs> like a screenwriting class um it was it was my i have never gone to film school so i you know after working at cbc all day i took this like weekly evening class at of con ed at uft shout out to lana pesh the teacher <laughs> and uh, wrote the first draft of this script there. And I really just wanted to push myself to write something in a way that I've never written before.
0: And Lucius, you're the co-director here. How do you and Amanda complement one another in this process?
2: Oh, I think really beautifully. You know, Amanda is so smart and can basically do anything. <laughs> <laughs> anything and everything. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, we, we really had a a very natural working process, um, you know, especially on set, you know, she really worked, um, directly with the actors, you know, primarily I work primarily with the camera. Um, and, you know, we had moments where those, um, you know, those roles sort of switched or, you know, leaned more in one direction um, but it was pretty seamless you know I I had um, co-directed uh, one film before that and um, I think the the working process you know between two people who are supposed to be leading and make, you have so many decisions to make um, there's so much room for conflict for <laughs> <laughs> disagreement for just you know different um, aesthetics or approaches, and I think that uh, you know Amanda is like so strong in her vision, um, but so kind and warm in in you know working collaboratively.
0: Amanda, one of the the themes that I took away from this, or one of the the notes that I took away from this, uh, was one of legacy. Your uh, your character who is about to pass away, we can say that uh is she said not afraid of dying but of not being remembered and i thought that was extraordinarily powerful
1: even though this is a futuristic you know setting the the themes of it are universal and you know, even though we don't have an app that tells us when we're going to die, we all know we are going to die. And, you know, there's something that is so scary about this thing that everybody, we all share in common. And, and I was really curious about what is the thing that is the scariest part of that, you know? And when I started to ask the question for myself, it was this idea of like, everything you did won't matter, you know, nothing matters. And that's, i don't know to me that's just completely terrifying and i love the idea of nina being this you know woman who's so vivacious and uh you know charismatic and living life to the fullest and you know has done so much mm-hmm. um but at the same time feeling as though none of it will matter anymore um and yeah it just hit me as a sort of a poignant sort of element it was it was you know one of the things that i could relate to it's a I guess it's a fear that I have as well too you know it's you I remember when I was younger my best friend and I used to write um diaries and then share the entries with each other just to make sure someone heard it (laughs) (laughs) which is like doesn't that go against the complete idea of the diary (laughs) but but something about knowing, having somebody else know that you you had this experience, you yeah. had this moment, you had these emotions, and you articulated it in this way, right? Um, seeking that audience or that appreciation or that affirmation of your existence, I thought was really interesting. It was written, shot, and started going through the editing process in twenty nineteen. Oh wow! So, <laughs> you know, it's it was in the BC before COVID. Yeah, that's you know? right. <laughs> like, um, and so yeah for it to to and then in the meantime both lucius and i had children so like our lives have completely changed from the time that we made this and i think my script probably would change if i was to write it today you know the questions that i would ask the things but i think it's really fascinating and and kind of you know one of those sort of universal like the universe has a better plan than you had it, it you know it's kind of perfect that it's coming out right now and um and, and that it asks all of these questions that we've all been asking each other and thinking about ourselves.
0: That was Amanda Paris and Lucius de Chausse. Check out their short film, Death Doula, at the Caribbean Tales Film Festival. All the details you need are at Caribbean Tales tv First, we meet Al Val, a queer comedian, actor, writer, and musician who was recently featured on CBC Gems' The New Wave of Stand-Up and will be seen as part of the all-new season of The Stand-Up Show with John Doerr. Here's Alva. Why did your siblings used to call you Space Cowboy?
4: Uh, great opening question. You, you <laughs> dig right in to, to my sh- shady past. Um, I used to be called Space Cowboy because I would... I would be very quiet around my family and just in my own universe. I wouldn't talk much. I would just be off somewhere. And there were so many instances where we would all pack into the car. I have a big family, four siblings, and we would pack into the car to go to some event, a a funeral, a family reunion. And maybe half an hour into the drive, I would be like, where are we going? Like, I would just never really know what was going on. And I would just sort of go with the flow.
0: Well, I asked that question because I wonder if this idea of just living in your head a little bit, uh, relates directly to your work. Now, uh, the idea that you were maybe thinking about other things, creating characters, letting your mind wander, um, those are all things that you can use in comedy, uh, in the improv work that you've done. Uh, I wonder if there's a straight line between space cowboy (laughs) and what you're doing today.
4: Yeah, I would say that's not much of a stretch. I would say you're exactly right. I mean, living in my head, I I got to use my imagination a lot. I was I spent a lot of time entertaining myself before I attempted entertaining other people.
0: Were there comedians that first made an impression on you? Did you see someone on television or, you know, comedy CDs or albums or something? What was it that grabbed you about comedy?
4: Um I don't know. Well, well I kind of I always made my best my best friend growing up his name was Kieran and he had one of those laughs that filled the room and was super contagious and really unique so I was never really funny the funny one in the group he was but making him laugh got everybody in the room to laugh so that was kind of how I got hooked on on the feeling the endorphins of making a whole room laugh even though it wasn't (laughs) really me it was just my buddy but um I would say, I mean, the early days of I don't know if you remember like Kazaa and Napster and all those. Yeah, yeah. Downloading sites, I used to pack my little iPod with all the comedy that I could find. And most of the most of the titles were off. None of them really like I would listen to just a a mishmash of comedy and and I would listen to that while I would mow the lawn. And that just kind of, I don't know, again, it's a space cowboy kind of thing where I would just sit in my own universe and lock everything out.
0: Well, I've read the Dane Cook and the Retaliation album was one that really made an impression on you.
4: Yeah. You know what? I avoided mentioning that because I know I, I'm going to get a lot of hate for it. For I, I know reason. what happens
0: when you mention his name now, but yeah, but we're, we're going back a few years now.
4: Yes. Yes. I was young and impressionable people leave me alone. (laughs) Um, No, but honestly, I think it uh, in high school, when I heard retaliation, that is when I decided I wanted to do comedy because you can't deny the energy in that room and Mm -hmm. just how captivated they all are. And just how on board it was, it was raucous. They were, it was, it was like a rock show. And I, and I wanted that feeling just, I felt it through that album. I was like, I want to, I want to, energize a room like that
0: it's like hearing kieran laugh all over again
4: yeah yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) what was your first gig like oh my first gig was at the rockwater barbecue and grill in london ontario uh i remember it uh it was october 16th or 17th 2006 i was fresh out of high school i was in university i knew right away like first gig opportunity i was taking it um, and it was, was it an open
0: mic and like, you could just sign up and wait and see if you got on. And was it one of those situations?
4: It was a competition. Oh, wow. But, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you only got three minutes. And I did like a Mitch Hedberg style, non-sequitur one-liners kind of thing.
0: You're listening to my interview with comedian Al Val. Check him out on CBC Gems, the new wave of stand-up.
4: And naturally I didn't make it to the next round <laughs> and I felt pretty hard done by, by that. So I've ever since then, I've been, uh, I've had a chip on my shoulder from when I didn't make it to the next round of <laughs> the Rockwater Barbecue and Grill comp London's funniest person. <laughs> I did was shocked that I wasn't London's funniest person on my first try.
0: Do you remember some of the jokes from the night?
4: I remember there was one line I had about the name Ruben, like naming your kid after a sandwich or something like that. And then going off on a tangent about naming my kid marshmallow or something.
0: (laughs) And had you sat down with a notebook and, and written these out? How did you practice? I mean, the idea of being up on stage alone in front of people for the first time, talking directly hoping to get laughs did you get laughs were there many laughs
4: I got I got a chuckle and a snort I would say
0: (laughs) so a chuckle and a snort so yeah uh, but but how did you prepare for that
4: um I I used to be pretty adamant about writing every idea good or bad Mm -hmm. in in my notebook I I have these little notebooks filled with just nonsense absolute hieroglyphics sometimes and so i don't know it was just i was i was really eager from the start so it wasn't hard coming up with material because like i said i would just anything anything at all i would write it down
0: and when do you think it was that you found your groove you know i've talked to a lot of comedians the first show is rarely kind of emblematic of what their career is going to be like. It takes a little while to find your voice, to find the things that you want to talk about. Um when do you think that you you nailed that when you found
4: that? That is a really good question. I I think it's it's hard to say because it's always an ongoing process, but mm-hmm. I would say I would say I found you know, I talk about Dane Cook's energy. I feel like I found that charisma pretty early on because i wanted to kind of emulate like i said the energy in the room and in in retaliation i've just been always trying to pursue that feeling and so i'm i'm a very high energy comic i like to move my body i like to jump around on stage uh i'm not doing flips like Dane cook is (laughs) but um i like to be i like to be big in the room and and get people excited so that came pretty early and i and i have to say i mean when i came out Three or four years ago, as gender fluid, um, that significantly changed my voice because while I still retain that energy, while I still have that delivery and the charisma, it's a lot more honest now. Right. And I have a lot more to write about because I'm really, I'm really working through something,
0: you know? Do you think that uh, your work as a gender fluid queer comic uh, it, it reflects or the honesty that you bring to the stage now? Did it? uh, make you feel more comfortable? Did it make you feel you've always been high energy, but you know, knowing that there's nothing to hide behind anymore. You're, you're putting it out there. You are, uh, saying who you are and what you represent, uh, for everyone to see. Was that liberating? I guess that's the question.
4: Yeah. Big time. I mean, it wasn't easy at first because I was working through a lot of shame Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it still kind of comes through in, in a bit here and there is, is it's, some some of the things I talk about are kind of projections of my shame and things that I'm working through right but um I would say that yeah it's been extremely liberating because all those years doing stand-up I was kind of like a a party boy dancing monkey (laughs) and and just afraid of people finding this this horrible secret out about myself so now that I've opened up and and expressed it to the world it's I have nothing left to lose and all this time i thought i had everything to lose and and it's just not true and and god it's it's done wonders for my career yeah that must feel good right it's amazing i you know if anybody's listening who is closeted uh you'd be surprised how many people will have your back and uh you know take your time
0: a little bit of Al in action. So
4: I came out, actually it's kind of, it's poetic that I'm doing this tonight because I'm, I'm not joking, two years ago, to the day, I came out on stage uh, and I came out as queer. It's a nice umbrella term for me. It encapsulates all I'm about, I'm, I'm gender fluid, I do this like half the time, you know? And then uh, I'm attracted to men, women, trans. At this point it's a lot easier to identify as queer than desperate, I think. <laughs> It just sounds nicer you
0: know you say that you tend to live in the moment on stage um does what what does that mean does that mean that uh you go up with a list of bullet points of things that you want to talk about and just see what happens or how does it work
4: um i mean that's that's pretty much it i go up like uh, I heard the other day, some, some pro was complaining about comics going up with stuff written on their hands. Mm. And in the 14 years I've been doing this, I still write stuff on my hands. Like there was a, on the stand-up show with John Doerr on that footage, you can see, I still have bits <laughs> written on my hand <laughs> because I'm a space cowboy and I'm forgetful, but, but it's true. I also live in the moment. So I get easily distracted and I really do enjoy improvising on stage. I think, um, If a comedian's having fun, that really translates to the audience and it gives them permission to just relax and have fun with you. So any opportunity to improvise or anything that spontaneously inspires me or hits me, I I love to pursue those threads. So, um, yeah, I keep it pretty bullet pointed. I make sure I kind of remember where I'm going, but I'm always open to to navigate to improvising.
0: Yeah. And and feeling the vibe in the room, I would imagine.
4: Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Some people want to be talked to.
0: Yeah. And okay. Well, uh, do you get heckled? I mean, uh, you might have been, and you tell me, but were you afraid when you came out that it would change the interaction that you would have with the audience? Oh yeah. In terms of heckling and things.
4: Yeah. At the beginning I was terrified. And to be honest, there are still some gigs that I'm very apprehensive about expressing myself a little bit more flamboyantly, if that makes sense, you know, keeping it, uh, Keeping it locked in a box and going out and just being that dancing monkey party boy again. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I found that you know audiences have surprised me too. Like uh, Toronto, I haven't had a chance to travel very far outside of Toronto since COVID hit. Right. But like Toronto never ceases to surprise me at how supportive universally everybody is. I haven't experienced a whole lot. I mean, I got, I almost got in a fight at one bar, but that was kind of it. The guy was drunk and alone. So (laughs) one insignificant transphobic speck in a sea of love, adoring support. I'll take it. It's fine.
0: And how do you, uh, other than almost getting into fights (laughs) or the one time anyway, (laughs) uh, how do you deal with a heckler? Um, What's your best advice? Is it better just to like shut them down with a quick Barb, or is it better to kill him with kindness?
4: I usually kill with kindness. <laughs> I, I, I have this terrible affliction that makes me need to to need everyone to like me. Right, it's crippling. Richard,
0: you're listening to my interview with Al Val. Find their comedy at CBC Gems: The New Wave of Standup. <laughs> and
4: so, uh, anytime a heckler heckles, even if it's not in good faith, even if it's mean, I'll usually, I'll. I'll banter with them. Like I'll roast them like a friend would, you know what I mean? It's never maliciously punching, but it's kind of, it's not punching down. It's kind of punching sideways, like a backhanded compliment or something like that. Um, So usually I'll engage with them. I don't know if I can give anybody advice because everybody's style is different, but like the best advice I can give is to stay calm. You're the one with the microphone. You have the advantage. This guy didn't get paid to be here. So trust that whatever you come out with is probably going to be better than whoever whoever is audacious enough to challenge you
0: let's talk about uh the stand up show with john dor uh you're on that now is it uh true that when you do a show like that 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 material is now burned you can't do it in the clubs anymore or how does that work for you
4: it's burned for tv so i can still right. do it in clubs uh, especially because I'm not well known at all, so it's not like I'm gonna show up and people would be like, "We've seen it on TV, bro." <laughs> Thank God I'm I haven't reached that point yet. So, um, it is burned for TV though, unfortunately. So that stuff I can't do on a taping anymore. Right, right, right. Which is right. sad because I do a bit about bike a bike cop that's been my closer for like eight years, and now I can't do it anymore.
0: <laughs> Well, I'm sure that more will, uh, another great closer will present itself. Sometimes. I hope you're right. Richard, yeah, if, yeah. if
4: you want to help me write, let's <laughs> yeah. uh, let's make a regular thing yeah. in these meetings. Uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> I'll put my thinking cap on for you.
4: My favorite sex game, we just gather a bunch of people into a room, we turn off the lights and everybody just goes, nom 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 nom
0: Is there anything else that we should uh, plug and mention?
4: Um, they can also find footage of my, just for laughs, uh, new faces set right. last month in Montreal that is on YouTube. It's an easy search. It's a quick find. If they look up JFL new faces, Al Val, it should be the first thing that pops up. So that right. check that out. And my podcast is called Podgis. P O D G I S.
0: And tell me about the podcast. What happens on the
4: podcast? It's really just a very simple, it's me being a space cowboy all by myself. It's just stream of consciousness. I just I just talk about what I'm going through, what I'm thinking, what I've seen uh, in the week. It's just me having a silly time.
0: And what kind of connection do you think that, that makes with your listeners? You mentioned earlier in the interview, you said, uh, you know, anyone who's thinking of coming out, do it. There's more support out there than you imagine. Do you think that the podcast uh supplies that as well gives people who might be a little unsure about uh g- coming out or or any number of things uh they listen to it and they realize that you know it's possible and healthy and you know all those sorts of things is that part of the deal
4: i've had i've had people approach me to say that that the things that i've spoken about have helped them cope with the their insecurities and the things that they're repressing and that that has been enormously humbling. I don't ever uh, claim to be any kind of a a voice for anyone else but myself. But you know what, I do talk a lot about the changes that I'm going through and taking hormones. So I talk about my sensitive nipples a lot. Um, But yeah, you know, I I find that it, I, I do relate very honestly and openly. And I think that isn't that is a good opportunity to connect and relate to that kind of thing. I'm really finding the words hard to say here, because like I said, I don't claim to be an inspiration for anybody, right. but I, I hope so. If Sometimes I you can person, be like
0: a, like a, almost like a sideways inspiration, right? You do you just by existing.
4: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, thanks so much.
4: This was a pleasure. Thank you for the, the questions are very insightful. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. That was queer comedian Al Val. Check out all the projects Al has going on uh, over at CBC Gem or maybe on YouTube. You can check him out in the stand-up show with John Dorr. <music> My guest in this segment is Lyndon McIntyre. You know him from his 24 years as a correspondent for The Fifth Estate. Or perhaps because you're a fan of Canadian literature, lots of bestsellers to his name, including his newest book It's called The Winter Wives. And it's about two old friends. And in this book, it weaves together all kinds of interesting elements of crime and disability and dementia. You have Byron and Allen, friends since university. They were so tight, they even married sisters. But after a long night of drinking many years later, some cracks start to show in their relationship. Turns out they both loved one sister, so Byron had to quote settle for the other one. The next day when Alan suffers a stroke, he loses control of his life, of his wife and his business empire, which turns out to have been built on lies and the illegal drug trade. No spoilers here though. The book is called The Winter Wives, it's in stores right now, and its author, Linda McIntyre is with me right now. Here's Lyndon McIntyre. It is a book that is uh, about identity. It's about uh, asking questions about how well do you know the people that are around you. Tell me a little bit about uh, where this idea came from.
3: Well, it came from a number of places. First of all, I started reflecting a bit on, on uh, dementia because it's a very common state of, of illness uh, nowadays. And then I started thinking about how it affects. The way we are perceived when we suffer it how we perceive the people who have it how how it affects relationships and that took me to a broader reflection on relationships in general how well do we know people suddenly you hear this all the time that the person who disappears into dementia becomes a stranger becomes unfamiliar Mm -hmm. and and of course you can reverse that too the people that from that person's point of view around him or her they become strangers and Looking at, looking at that as, as a kind of a, an insight into relationships in general, it, it sort of led me to the conclusion that you know, we, re- we re- rarely ever know anybody as well as we think we do. Uh, we've heard this many, many times. Somebody uh, becomes a different kind of personality when they have dementia. That, you know, a cranky person becomes good-natured, a good-natured person becomes <laughs> a belligerent. And it makes me ask, well, did we ever really know those people to start with? Maybe they were always the way we see them now. And so the question for me then becomes, how do, do these perceptions of change affect relationships? And whether or not the, 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 the challenge of a relationship is to really, really know somebody well or to really, really accept what we discover about people as we spend more time with them and get to know them better. And you work both in fiction and nonfiction. Why
0: take the route of doing this as a work of fiction, creating a crime story and the whole thing that goes along with this, uh, rather than doing a nonfiction piece on dementia and how it affects our relationships?
3: I wanted to get deeper into the human dimension of this in, in a way that requires a lot of subjectivity and, and, and a lot of sort of, a lot of, a lot of imagination because we cannot actually uh, objectively reproduce the state of, of, of consciousness of someone whose, whose personality is falling apart. So I think that in order to do that, I had to um, imagine relationships that I've never had. I had to imagine challenges that I've never had to deal with. And I had to imagine the point of view of people who are in a condition that i hope i will never end up in and and imagine the impact that that has on on people who, who take certain things for granted in any relationship suddenly the person that was a you know an, an important part of your entire life structure is 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 becoming a, a a burden or a responsibility to do that um i thought it would be more useful and probably maybe allow enable more originality if i just sort of took it through the the area of speculative fiction.
0: You're listening to my interview with Lyndon McIntyre, author of The Winter Wives, in stores and on bestseller charts right now. I'm always interested to hear uh, authors discuss their characters because you, while you're writing the book, I think you have a relationship with those characters. You have to. In a book like this, uh, which asks these questions about identity, does it change the relationship that you have with the characters as you go along. Do you discover more about them uh, the the deeper you dive into this idea that their personalities are changing and 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 things are different uh, in their lives than perhaps they were at the beginning of the book?
3: Well, that's an interesting question because it it it's, it absolutely goes to the core of the creative challenge. Um, you create, per, you create uh, uh, characters in a particular situation, and then the situations change. They evolve. New situations arise. So therefore, you, you have to find new relationships with, with, the, with the character. And I think that's pretty much like life. If you get into any kind of a partnership, whether it's domestic or, or corporate or whatever, as time goes by, uh, t- different challenges arise. They, they affect your relationships and you have to adapt to them. And it's the same with the creative process. I didn't envisage all the particular scenes that that show up in this book. And as each scene arose, it seemed to be a logical progression of the narrative, a logical progression of the story. And of course, it it does create challenges with, okay, how does the the character react to this? And I will be the, the author of the reaction, but at the same time, it will be a surprise to me that that this, the challenges that this re, that this reaction in, involves, and so yes, my rela- You know, there are times in this book, and you probably know where they are, where where my relationship with certain characters became extremely difficult,
0: mm-hmm.
3: almost to the point of breaking the relationship, almost to the point where I'm just not going to write any more of <laughs> this crap. So because <laughs> I was just kind of like so offended by where the narrative arc led me in the life of this particular person. And, and there was, it was really a challenge. I had to set it aside for a while. And then I picked it up and I said, well, you know what? This is, this is a sort of a, a kind of way we live, isn't it? You know, you, you're married to someone or you're in business with someone and, and you suddenly hit a, a kind of a crisis where the behavior of your partner it, is like shocking. And then you have to really face the, in, the, the fundamental integrity of the relationship and the fundamental value of the relationship and the fundamental value of the person that's engaged in this breakdown or whatever it is, and and you decide, you make a decision, am I going to continue the relationship or not? And I actually came up against that very human challenge in, in this book. Would you have put it aside? I mean, you put it aside. Would you have shelved it
0: completely at, at well, any I'm, point during this? I
3: decided, you know what, I'm going to play it out to the bitter end and see. I, I didn't even know where the end was. Right. I'm I'm going to just sort of filter this to what I understand about the cha- the other characters and see how they react. And the reactions were ambiguous. I mean, one one person who didn't know the full story, she uh, sort of like, "Come on, let's let's get on with things." And the other person who was part of the of the outrageous uh, behavior, uh, she walls everything off. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, okay, I'm going to take this to the end, and then I'm going to run this by some, <laughs> particularly some women readers that whose opinions I respect and I did and it was the responses of it was those responses that reassured me okay I'm not going to burn this or whatever you do in the digital right. age <laughs> you don't <laughs> burn stuff anymore I guess yeah. but, but I'm, I'm going to leave let this play out and see where it takes you know where, where how it survives out in the world because you know a book becomes a, an organic thing and it becomes the property of whoever decides to read it and uh, and and then the person who decides to read it will face the same challenges in in his or her relationship with this book. And so, the book is now on its own. Uh, I've accepted the behavior, I've accepted the characters, I've accepted their warts. That was
0: Lyndon McIntyre on his book, The Winter Wives. Find it wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Lyndon, a big thanks to Al Val, comedian, actor, and writer, and a big thanks to Lucius DeSache and Amanda Paris, find their film. Death Doula at the Caribbean Tales Film Festival. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Croft. stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.